Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, um, which is convenient because this is the Red Remnant Podcast, and it's brought to you by the, the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, you can go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, f- listen to our other podcasts, um, you know, just become an all-around better person, um, maybe even, you know, learn how to bake, you know, seven-minute brownies in five minutes or something like that. I don't know. Anyway... Um, and, uh, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Ernest, uh, more about them in a little bit. So, um, today's guest, you know, checks many, many of the boxes that the various bean counters and rabid hordes out there have demanded that we check. Uh, we often hear we need more women. We often hear we need more devout Catholics. We often hear we need more libertarians. We often hear we need to have more anti-nationalists. Um, and so we have like seven or eight people in the room to fill all that. Um, but instead, we actually just have Stephanie Slade, managing editor reason. That's correct. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. About once a week, someone randomly tweets at me, why don't you have her on? And, um, you know, I'm a sl- if nothing else, I am a slave to the populist masses. So, um and I actually have this theory, have this strategy I think I'm going to start exploring of just simply inviting one reason writer after another until one of my oldest and dearest friends, Ron Bailey, is so ashamed of his refusal to come on that he just caves. Because I just heard that he was on Gillespie's podcast, and I know just simply because he works for reason, and, uh, um, that he might give them preference, but uh, I've been asking Ron to come on for about a year and a half now. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll I'll put in a good word for you. Um, I mean, depending on how, how how this goes. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, when when Ron and I used to work together, he was my boss for a while when he was a television producer, and he used to uh, when we would pick on him too much, um, you could hear him at the Xerox machine, just very passive aggressively in a stage whisper saying, "Poor Ron." Um, asking for sympathy and, and whatnot. But um, so he is now going to say poor Ron a lot because I've called him out on this podcast. <laughs> so um, so you are um, a somewhat rare gem in the reason solar system and that you are um, uh, a believing, sincere Catholic. 
and a libertarian. Do you go here for libertarian or classical liberal? I use the word libertarian. I always qualify it and say small L libertarian, uh-huh. not affiliated in any way with the libertarian party. Uh, because I'm, you don't like wearing the Star Trek uniforms? That as well, yeah. 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 And I, I mean, I, I am pro-life and um, sort of got my start in Republican politics, but I identify as a small L libertarian in terms of my, my political worldview. Okay. So how do you, in your own words, square the not to sound grandiose, the metaphysics of libertarianism and the metaphysics of, uh, of Catholicism. I have a piece recently at libertarianism.org that gets into it a little more, but the, the sort of long and short of it is um, I, I think that I'm also what, what in, in sort of jargony terms would be referred to as a thin libertarian, mm-hmm. which is to say that I think it is a philosophy of the proper role of the state. It tells us what role government should have in society. It doesn't tell us how to live our lives. It doesn't tell us what morality is on, on a personal level. And you have to look elsewhere to answer those bigger questions. And so I look to my faith and many other places as well. But I don't think that libertarianism answers those questions. So that's that's kind of how I can say that, for example, I accept the church's teaching on prostitution being immoral, but I don't necessarily think we should pass a law. Mm-hmm. To that effect, um, yeah, there's a there's a rich tradition of that in conservatism as well. Um, I think it's Oakshot, yeah, it's Oakshot who says you can be a radical in every other sphere of your life, but still be a conservative in your politics. And I often tell people one of the reasons I'm a conservative is because it's a partial philosophy of life, right? It doesn't tell you what food to eat, it doesn't tell you what music you have to listen to, and all that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily believe. I think you can also be a conservative in other parts of your life too, um, even if you're, you know, a conservative in, in your politics as well. I think I'm almost the other way around. I'm I'm personally quite conservative. Yeah. Um, my politics are quite radical. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Um, and that's why, when either, you know, Bernie Sanders or uh, Baron Trump become president, uh, you'll be one of the first people rounded up. <laughs> there's, really no, there's no question about that. <laughs> um, so. I mean, one of the reasons I ask about this is I listened to you on this. Um, I was telling you beforehand uh, that I listened to you on this uh, podcast, Roman Circus, mm-hmm. and uh, this is the the f- the bulk of my research preparing for this podcast. And um, on the drive in this morning, and I had to listen at at one and a half speed. And it was an old episode. You were weighing in on the Amari French Wars and all of that kind of stuff. And it was kind of interesting. You're basically the Venn diagram between you and me is there's an enormous amount shaded in called classical liberalism, sure. right? Um, but um, how do you deal with the post-liberal integralists, whatever we're supposed to call them this week, uh, who think that Catholicism requires state action? Yeah, I, I basically reject it. Um, I think that abortion is a unique issue, and so I like to try to set that aside. Maybe we could come back to that if you think it's sure. important too. But um, I think on on the vast majority of issues, um, you know, the government has a very circumscribed role in my in my philosophy, which is to protect life, liberty, and property, and um, and anything else when it comes to you know in- encouraging or de- determining what the good life looks like, or de- or encouraging people to live in a moral way. That should happen, and that should come from elsewhere. Um, that doesn't mean that we are all. F- autonomous floating individuals and, you know, with no community. Of course, when I say it should come from elsewhere, it can come from a lot of places, including community, families, religion, um, whatnot, civil society at large, but um, that that's not the proper role of the state. So I'm not a fan of um, this idea that if if you don't want to legislate it, then you don't believe it. Right. So, um, listening to you in this conversation um, and also just now, I think you were the one who made the point 
that, um, you know, look, they're only like, what, 22% of Americans are Catholics. So the idea of smashing all the safeguards of state that prevents state power from imposing its will on people is kind of a really risky proposition when most of the country isn't Catholic. And the idea that you're going to hold on to that state power and impose your view of the highest good on the 80% who disagree with you on first principles seems like a really bad strategy. I mean, first of all, it's tyranny by definition. Right. If you want to, if you want to impose your moral worldview on as a minority on the majority, that is just that is out of bounds. I think you know just on first principles. But yes, it's also it's also I think a strategic mistake. Uh, it's an, it would be what I call an unforced strategic error to say that we want to we want to smash up the classical liberal sort of values and institutions that have that have actually been doing a pretty good job. I mean, as your colleague David French has pointed out repeatedly. Um, done a pretty good job. You know, Hobby Lobby decision was handed down, uh, you know, on the side of Hobby Lobby. The Little Sisters of the Poor decision was was more or less on on the side of the Little Sisters of the Poor. The Masterpiece Cake Shop decision, like you go down the line, a lot of these um, attacks on traditionalist traditionalist communities and individuals and institutions. I'm not saying that attacks weren't real. I'm just saying that 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 our institutions, you know, did what they were supposed to do. Right. No, so what I'm, but what I want to lead up to is a point of possible disagreement between us. So I think we both agree that winning one election and all of a sudden, uh, you know, like the iconoclasts of yore taking hammers to all the edifices of of checks and balances and limited government at the federal level is a bad idea, right? Um, but one of my constant complaints about Amariism, or whatever the term is, uh, Renoism, um, is I don't understand why they can't make a goal, which libertarians used to do something like this too, of instead of taking over the federal government, how about taking over the government of Rhode Island, right? I mean, you there are enough Catholics who believe in this stuff, and traditionalists generally who believe in this stuff, who could aim a little lower, right? Or even, even if it's not all of Rhode Island, I got a county in Rhode Island and set up a smaller, I mean, I'm not going to call it, you know, it's not going to be a handmaid's tale or, you know, a harsh dictatorial theocracy, but you can do things at the local level that reinforce your notion of the highest good in a subsidiarity kind of way. And as a conservative who's not quite a libertarian, I am much less troubled by soft tyranny at the local level than I am at the federal level. So what do you think of that? I mean, I'm definitely less troubled by it, but I'm still troubled. Um, And, you know, also at a pragmatic level, the libertarians did actually try this. There was this thing called the the Free State Project where all the libertarians were going to en masse, you know, move to one small state and take over the government and and build out a libertarian utopia. And it would be a demonstration project that would show that our ideas are are superior. Um, And a lot of people committed to doing it and no one actually went through with it. And it's really gotten us nowhere. um, so I think it's actually just it's harder to carry out in practice than it sounds in theory. Um, but more importantly, but organizing libertarians is a little different than organizing Catholics. Yeah, no, not just traffic and grotesque stories, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, it could they could try it, um, and we could have. Um, a sort of mass exodus out of the rest of the forty-nine states and into Rhode Island or wherever. Um, I actually think that there is a a, a, a a moral argument grounded in Catholic teaching that makes this questionable from my perspective, which is to say that, you know, we we believe in free will. We believe that God made us free people, gave us the right to make choices for ourselves. 
Um, we believe in the dignity of the human person. This is this is all like Catholic 101, mm-hmm. and, you know, just as it is conservatism 101 or libertarianism 101. Um, but if you if you crack open the catechism of the Catholic Church, it's right there that, you know, we were made in God's image um, and endowed with rationality and given the right to make to be master of our own choices. Um, and so passing laws that constrain people's ability to make choices because we don't like them um, if they're not aggressing against or infringing on someone else's rights. Uh, that to me is questionable. And, and I made that argument uh, as, as a sort of, in, in addition to the, the problems, the, the practical problems with a sort of a Mariite program of passing laws when you're not in the majority and that sort of thing, um, and smashing up institutions that have been working pretty well for us. I think uh, I think it's very it's question it's questionable theologically to say that the state should have a right to make us all better better people, or that that that, that that's consistent with um, Catholic social teaching and the Catholic understanding of the dignity of the human person. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and we get we can get into some messy terminological swampiness here between state and government. You know, I actually like Randolph Bourne's distinction between the two. Um, And then there's state and government, and then there's local government, right? And then there's local community. But it seems to me that, you know, I mean, I've been saying this for a long time, but like I have done, since you were in grade school, I have been on scores of panels in Washington doing libertarians versus conservatives stuff. And I've kind of lost my taste for it because I've become so much more libertarian over the years. Welcome. But the, um, and look, if all libertarians basically had your point of view about a lot of this kind of stuff in terms of the merging Catholicism and libertarianism, uh, which doesn't mean like you get both the black tar heroin and the Eucharist, but, uh, you know, I would be even more likely to move over. But my point is, is that Whenever there's some sort of searing public policy argument, um, at some point someone, sometimes it's from the audience, sometimes it's someone on the panel, says, wouldn't the differences between you guys, between the conservatives and libertarians, all be solved if we just returned to the original intent of the Constitution, which had a federalist constitutional order that pushed these questions down the most local level possible so you didn't have one-size-fits-all policy imposed from above on an an entire continental nation? And for the most part, all the libertarians and the conservatives, at least in the past, said, yeah. And then they go back to arguing because they like to argue about the first principle stuff. But um, as long as you have the right to exit, right, as long as you have the right to move out, what is so terrible about some town in Rhode Island having uh, dry laws or um, blasphemy laws a little tougher, but uh, anti-pornography laws, um, anti-prostitution laws, Um and if you don't want to live in the kind of town that has those kinds of laws, you have two options. You can democratically agitate to change the law or you can move to the next town over. What is so terrible about that? Yeah. And you beat me to it. I was going to say the thing that makes sort of the the, the federal federalism and localism um, better from our perspective, I think, is that there is a right of exit. That it's much easier to pick up and move to the next town or the next state than it is to, to leave your, your country right. where you're a citizen, especially in a world where we are increasingly concerned about borders and and, um, you know, reducing the porousness of those borders. So and the right to and the right to cross cross them just at, at whim. Um, so that is that that is part of what makes um, subsidiarity and and localism better than mm-hmm. nationalism, I think. Um, but you're, you do, you still have the, the the problem of what is the limiting principle? Um, how how far can your local government go in um, rejecting the values of the rest of the society? Um, are we just going to say, well, if 
because we have a constitution that makes it extra complicated. But even in like a perfect utopian um, sort of federalist world or localist world, can you choose to set up a, a autonomous local, you know, district that has slavery, that has, you know, capital punishment by stoning for adultery? Can you can you do those things? Can no. you have blasphemy laws? But why not? What's the limiting principle? Is it just the Constitution? I mean, you have to ask these questions about how far, how far, how much, how much leeway are we willing to give a local... Yeah, so, so that, that, that's actually an easy answer for me. And I, I've heard Nick Gillespie, uh, you know, talk about the utopia of utopias. And then when I had up on a podcast, um, I asked him, okay, so what are you actually willing to let local communities do? And if memory serves, he kind of whiffed on it. You know, and I, I've been going back and forth with Nick for 25 years, so it's fine. But um, the limiting principle is, first of all, uh, the fundamental ideas of that are enshrined in the Constitution and also in the, the spirit of the, the Declaration of Independence, which I've heard you talk about today and previously about, which is the innate dignity of the human being. I mean, like one of the reasons why abortion is different, I think you'd agree with me, is that at the end of the day, the question of who is or who is not a human being is one that you cannot have a plurality of attitudes about, right? You can't, this is one of the reasons why f- slavery had to be a federal issue, why uh, Jim Crow had to be a federal issue, um, and why abortion, I think now, because of the ideological maturation of it, has to be a federal issue, is because you cannot have a rich tapestry of divergent opinions about who is or who is not a human being as determined by the state. Um, and so... Yeah, you would run them up against some 14th Amendment problems, right? Um, but anti-pornography laws are legal. Anti-prostitution laws are constitutional. Um, uh, there are all sorts of laws at the margins that have deep precedent in this country. I don't think you could have an established... Actually, I, I don't go back on that. Maybe you could or couldn't have an established church of Rhode Island. You used to. Um, so... Uh, but you can't you can't make people slaves. We fought a civil war about that. We we changed the constitution like three times about that. Um, some questions are settled, but if you want to tell people that um, uh, they can ban cars in downtown or at you know whatever, my point is is that while you're a thin libertarian, as I put it, I'm a maximum libertarian at the federal level for the most part. Um, I'm kind of squishy conservative free market capitalist guy at the state level. And at the local community level, I'm pretty communitarian. I, I think people in groups have the right to be wrong, too. Sure. I mean, and, and sometimes I've debated with my colleagues at Reason over things like whether a Christian college should have the right to um, or, or, or should, whether it's good or bad for them to have the right to like have certain codes for their students, you know, requiring their students to live a certain way or um, make different choices about whether or not um, to invite certain speakers on campus. Or And I'm very comfortable with a private institution uh, um making choices that my colleagues don't like because they find them to be insufficiently libertarian mm-hmm. um, because there's no coercion there. But uh, And so I guess we get a little bit closer to a situation where there's not, no coercion when you have a right of exit and we're talking about truly a, a local level of government. Um, but I, I still think it's important to think about the liberty, limiting principles of that. And um, I, I don't know, I guess I'm not sh- 100% sure that just saying, well, if it's constitutional at the federal level, everything else goes is enough um, to make me feel... Um, and especially at the state level, if we're talking about what what should be policy at the state level, um, I, I I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth. I mean, we talk about this a lot amongst ourselves, even among libertarians. There's disagreement about the question of whether, um, you know, whether the classical liberal values um, ex- should extend 
um, and how far they should, should extend in terms of what states and local governments should allow and whether that, you know, certain communities or certain certain jurisdictions should be able to be, you know, almost anti-libertarian in their in the way they or not. And whether that's consistent with both libertarianism and with, um, you know, American exceptionalism. Yeah, I I, see, I know. I again, I, I I know that libertarians debate all this stuff a lot, um, and which is why I brought it up is because one of my great frustrations with libertarians is that when they're outward facing to the world, they make it sound like there's this incredible consistency among libertarians, and then when they're inward facing, they fight like Jews on a tour bus, um, and uh, and. There are enormous differences, doctrinal differences, philosophical differences within libertarianism. Yes, our fringe movement is big tent. Yeah, no, that's right. And um, I got into a debate. Oh, God, I can never remember his name. The guy who ran for libertarian president, uh, for president on the libertarian ticket in 2000. He and I did this long back and forth on National Review Online uh, in 2000, where he just kept, well, it was 2004, I can't remember now because I'm old. Um, he kept insisting that you know libertarianism is the only truly consistent political philosophy, and my response to that was twofold: one, no, it's not, um, because there's lots of disagreement among libertarians, and two, who the hell made consistency the highest watermark of of political authenticity? I mean, Marxism is very consistent too. It doesn't mean it's right. Um, anyway, uh, anyway, I wanted to check all these boxes because I love tweaking libertarians um because i love them so i should also say i want to talk about the catholicism stuff because um i every now and then like with the podcast recently with michael strain i make these jokes about catholics and i wanted to clean up the fact that uh i am in fact wildly how would you call it philo catholic philo papist <laughs> uh pro catholic if you read um yeah, so Nick is showing me uh, the name Harry Brown. That might have been it. I, I should find it um, for the libertarian guy Guy, I argue with. Um, um, you know, I like Catholics so much I married one. And um, uh, and if you read my very underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés, you'll find a long discussion about how – long, you know, a defense of the Catholic Church in all sorts of different ways. But um, we should probably move on. Uh, you – we have. There's another area of agreement we have is that we are both deeply skeptical of the new nationalist movement on the right. Uh, why don't you make your plenary case uh, against it, or what your major reservations are? Yeah. So I, I run through this in the the new cover story of the new issue of Reason against the new nationalism, um, in which I basically I, I think it helps to take a step back and and make clear that this is part of that same larger um, that 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 phenomenon of the schism opening up on the right between what I think are those who are continued to be conservatives committed to classical liberal values and those who are sort of walking away from or in some cases out, you know, openly rejecting classical liberalism as a sort of failed experiment. And um, I, and so the question here is like, can nationalism be, can, can it be reconciled with classical liberalism or not? And I'm really skeptical that it can be, despite some smart people trying to make the case that it, that it, it need not be a liberal. Um, I, I argue in my piece for reason that ultimately, um, I mean, if you actually do define nationalism as just patriotism or love of country, then there's nothing illiberal about that in my sure. view. But we have a word for that and everybody understands what that word means. And it's broadly popular, you know, it doesn't have any of the sort of baggage and the negative connotations um, 
that nationalism has. And so why would they, why is there now this push to revive and resuscitate nationalism? And um, I, I make the case that in fact, it, it includes a lot more. There's a whole there's a whole substantive policy component to what the nationalists are in favor of that is deeply illiberal. I mean, it involves um, at a cultural level trying to persuade uh, people that we need to be more less individualistic and more collectivist. That that the individual autonomy and uh, individual liberty should be subsumed to the national national interest, as of course defined by them, the nationalists, um, and as defined and carried out by the national, you know, by the federal government in Washington. Um, so it's anti-individualist, it's anti-localist. It involves um, a rejection of many of the sort of long-standing um, conservative principles on free trade and free markets. We want much more protectionism, high tariffs. We want. Um, sort of um, aggressive subsidies to prop up American industry and American businesses and help uh, help them to outcompete the foreign competition. Um, it, we want, you know, to close borders and keep out people who might dilute our um, national culture in some way. Um, these are these are things that I, I argue are quite clearly um, profoundly at odds with the things that have always made America great, which is our um, our sort of stubborn uh, individualism and focus on individual liberties, uh, the rule of law, pluralism, tolerance, um, personal responsibility, limited government. And, and it all, I think, increasingly I'm thinking that it all sort of boils down to the idea that the government works for us, not the other way around. Right. This is a rejection of that, I think. No, I agree with that entirely. Um, uh, and just to clear the air, you take special aim at, at my friend and former boss, Rich Lowry. Um, I have debated this stuff with Rich many times now, and uh, we've just agreed to disagree about many things, and, and including this point, this basic point that you make, which drives me crazy, which I mentioned in this essay I just did on, on Edward Bellamy for The Dispatch. Um, they, so many of the pro-nationalists want to have it both ways. On the one hand, they want to say... Nationalism is this big, thriving new idea, and it's great, and it's awesome, um, and and this and it's this serious. It's got a seriously po serious policy program to it, and then you say, well, what about all the things that are bad about nationalism? And they say, well, that's that's not what we're talking about. Nationalism just means patriotism. And I was like, well, wait a second. You know, if if all of these policy ideas flow from something called nationalism, and it just means patriotism. Um, then why do you have to change the thing to nationalism? And then sometimes what Rich and one of my dearest friends, Ramesh Panuru, would do is say, well, we're talking about benign nationalism. Well, you know, benign does a lot of work there. <laughs> and um, and if all you're going to do is say benign nationalism, well, then you're even closer to sort of saying basically patriotism, which there's it, 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 sort of a semantical shell game that's going on that kind of drives me crazy. Yeah. I, and I, one of the reasons that I focus on um, Rich Lowry in his new book is that he's one of the most high profile and well-known proponents of the new nationalism. But another reason I focus on him is because he, he really wants to have it be that he is a, a not illiberal nationalist. He may, he may or may not want to call himself a liberal nationalist, but he's, you know, need not be illiberal is sort of his position. Um, so he's burnishing a vessel and he's claiming that there's nothing, there's nothing contained in that vessel that anybody should have a problem with. It doesn't require you to accept any particular policy program, for example, um, with maybe a few exceptions around, you know, immigration restrictionism. Um, 
Uh, but then, you know, what what I what I point out is that when you when you prod him a little bit, it's actually the case that he's very concerned about the um, about sort of protecting our na- the national culture as it currently looks, uh, keeping people out if they if they might you know I, I use the word dilute. I, I think he might take issue with that, but I think that's what it boils down to. Um, and by the way, there's a whole movement of conservative nationalists that are very eager to put their policies into that bucket that he has been spending his time burnishing and insisting is empty and void of all, you know, policy programming. Um, they are very clear about what their policy pro- programming looks like. And it is um, it is not the kinds of things that I'm comfortable with or that I think conservatives have, you know, for, for the last few decades, at least since Reagan, um, been in favor of. Yeah. Have, have you, did you read this? We had him on here. Um, Daniel Burns wrote this really interesting piece for National Affairs about, I can't remember what the title was, but it was, his basic point was that there's that doctrinaire liberalism of the classical, you know, Locke, you know, we actually take the second treatise and all that kind of stuff. There's lots of stuff that when we talk about liberal nations cannot be reconciled with that. And that's fine, right? Because there's there's cultural, you can be a culturally liberal society and actually not meet the sort of uh, the the strictures of liberal theory, right? There's a, you talk about liberalism applied versus uh, um, uh, liberal or liberalism in theory, and and so for example, you know, Locke has these majoritarian things in his writing that cannot be reconciled with the electoral college, cannot be reconciled with states, cannot be reconciled with all sort with the Senate, right? There are all sorts of things that. Um, uh, that don't match up, but it's okay because in a Hayekian way, right, in this sort of old Whiggish way, um, we've created liberal institutions that are close to the ground that accommodate these things. And my problem with nationalism is, you know, I think you can reconcile everything that Rich writes if if he had written a book about American exceptionalism, where then the nationalism part of American exceptionalism is about defending the quirkiness of America and its liberal institutions and liberal culture. But when you try to find common cause with Viktor Orban (laughs) and all of these nationalist movements around the world, you are basically... Um, giving up the ghost of what makes America special in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right in my view. Um, and again, Rich Lowry doesn't necessarily um, isn't openly advocating for these things. But the other, and I don't think secretly he would. But I, I know Rich. Rich is at his heart is more classically liberal on a lot of these things than he may sound on this stuff. Um, but I just think he's an error about a lot of this. But but I mean, if you go, if you went to the National Conservatism Conference, this big event that was held here in D.C. last summer, and you listen to the other people who are promoting, sure. openly promoting nationalism, and who are, who spent you know three days in great detail going through what that program looks like to them, um, it was very clearly um, illiberal, implicitly and explicitly. I mean, some of them said, like, Joram Hazani, who organized the conference, said, "Today we declare our independence from classical liberalism." Mm-hmm. He said that. Um, and then, you know, a parade of people got up on stage and talked about why we need to be willing to use the power of the state to, um, you know, sort of return America to its Judeo-Christian values, why we need uh, an industrial policy program of subsidies and investments and to prop up American industry and protect American workers. We have people, um, including Rich Lowry, actually, who say, say things like, yeah, I mean, global free trade seemed good in theory, but if it's lifting a million people out of poverty in China but hurting people here, then we should be against it because it's not in our national interests. I mean, they're not necessarily hiding, I think, yeah. um, what what this means to them. Yeah, so, and that's part of the problem, right, is that um, 
you know, let's just take Rich out of it for a second. So much of the post-integralist, uh, you know, post-liberal, nationalist, whatever you want to call it, so much of this stuff is really just an attempt to come up with an intellectual construct that defends Trumpism, right? And that this is the political moment where um, we need to make an argument that, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it's a very Joseph Schumpeter kind of, or, or, you know, uh, James Burnham kind of argument where people are constructing narratives that empower them as public intellectuals. And um, uh, I just have a hard time believing that any of this stuff has serious legs to it post-Trump because the only reason, it, you know, if you read the Sora Mari thing, it's really, you know, he says that Trump is a source of social cohesion, which I think is insane. <laughs> and um, um, And there's just this very powerful desire to come up with permission structures that can can make you hold on to some veneer of intellectual consistency while at the same time defending the sort of rule by fiat that we have in the White House. Yeah, absolutely. And Trump, to me, rec- uh, represents the thing I said a moment ago, which is the idea that um, our leaders are above the law instead of under the law and that the people should serve the government and the, and the person at the top of the pyramid as opposed to the other way around. And that's kind of what I think he represents. Um, and so he's but he's able to sort of get away with that if he calls it nationalism. Right. Um, because in a nationalist system, there's only one person who who technically was elected by all of us. And so you, you can kind of um, you can kind of justify that um, that sort of leader um, hagiography or leader leader worship by by putting that. That, that label on it. So we're recording this a couple of days after Super Tuesday. And I have to say that even though I very much did not want Bernie Sanders to be the nominee, one of the things I was really looking forward to is, and this is something that Yuval Levin and I have been talking about, um, that if Bernie is the nominee, and he still might be, it just looks less likely. If Bernie were the nominee, you know that Trump is going to run on libertarianism. And he's going to beclown an enormous number of the nationalists and make an enormous number of the libertarians very awkward. Because he's going to talk about socialism's evil, the market is great, you know, all that kind of stuff to differentiate himself with Bernie, right? And that would be awesome to watch because this is one of the this is one of the only few solid, you know, points of joy I have in intellectual life in the last few years is watching people construct these cathedrals of intellectual defense of Trump only to see him turn around and smash them like, you know, John Belushi with a guitar and Animal House. I mean, that yes, that's delicious to watch. But I'm also very nervous about this because I don't believe that he ever will be a libertarian. Of course or, not. Or a, or a sort of, you know, free market defender. And so if he's calling himself if he's calling himself or holding himself out as the defender of these values while still continuing to support the policies that he has supported when it comes to tariffs and protectionism and um you know bullying businesses into making choices that he likes like you know put the put the um factory here and not in Mexico or whatever um then it actually i think in the long run gives us a bad name because people start to i mean as it is i can't believe you would not believe how frequently i have find myself having to defend uh, libertarianism against the charge that we are just crony capitalists when in fact we are the ones that are saying get government out of this and stop you know right. crony capitalism is I mean 
Tim Carney, you're one of your AEI colleagues, uh, Tim Carney has made his career writing about all the ways that crony capitalism is a problem because it involves government handing privileges to certain businesses. That is not libertarianism. Right. And, and that has never been libertarianism. That is not free markets. That is not capitalism. But isn't that a failure on your part because libertarians have been running Washington for the last 30 Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting. <laughs> um, all right. I want to continue with that in a second. But first, we should talk a little bit about Ernest, our sponsor this week. A little financial relief goes a long way. Student loan refinancing with Ernest can help you pick a monthly payment that fits your budget so you can breathe easy today. If you're still paying the same rate you were when you graduated, odds are you could reduce your monthly payment and save big. Even if you've refinanced before, with today's low rate environment, most people can save by refinancing again. Ernest is the easiest way to refinance your student loans, saving you time and money. Checking your new rate is fast and easy. To start, complete a few questions online. It only takes about two minutes, and you'll get a personalized rate estimate, all without affecting your credit score. If you qualify, Ernest offers customizable loan terms and no fees. You can even combine private and federal loans. Imagine having one single monthly payment with one low rate. Already refinanced a loan? No problem. You can still be eligible to lower your interest rate again. So, start saving today. Our listeners can get a $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. That's E-A-R-N-E-S-T dot com slash dingo. That's $100 cash bonus when you refinance a student loan at earnest.com slash dingo. Go to earnest.com slash dingo today. Terms and conditions apply. No, look, I, I mean, like, I remember when Trump said at that rally, I think it was in California, that you know, he says, look, I'm supposed to call myself a conservative, but really the right word is nationalist. I did this post at the corner at National Review Online about, you know, it was, it, I don't think I mentioned Michael Brendan Doherty by name, but it was aimed at Michael because I love Michael. He's a great guy. Uh, he's a sincere nationalist, a little on the romantic side versus the whatever, but I think he's wrong about a lot of that, but he's, he's intellectually serious about it and he's makes good arguments and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know, hey, nationalists, you know, if you're a serious nationalist, you know how dismaying this must be? Because now, because of the president's megaphone and brand, whatever you thought nationalism was, that's gone. It's now Trumpism is like what nationalism is going to be defined as. And um, and it would be enormous fun in a schadenfreude-tastic kind of way to watch the nationalists freak out when he went libertarian against Bernie um, or the libertarians freak out saying, whoa, 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 he's not speaking for us. I mean, that just, he's not, though. I've had to do this for <laughs> conservatism for three years now. It's fair that everyone has a turn. <laughs> <laughs> um, so t- tell me about, you know, either within reason or sociologically in general um, among libertarians. Uh, I'm always surprised to see uh, Nick Gillespie straddle Trumpism. He every now and then has these, you know, to be sure things and, and, but he says, I'm not anti-Trump and blah, 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 blah. And there's a certain kind of deep sort of cynical, almost Nietzschean disdain that he can pull off because he's so far out of mainstream politics. Um, but in libertarian world, is there a strand now? Is there a tribe of Trumpists? In, I guess it depends how, how we define libertarian world. Um, sure, there are people who have been sort of fellow travelers of, our, of ours for, for many years who think that 
Trump is great because the judicial not, uh, appointments have been good, because he's done some deregulation, um, and because he pisses off all the right people, right? right? That's, right. Uh, so, he owns the libs. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that that is hard to defend um, at a high level uh, w- from libertarian principles. And so I think um, we are... Our philosophy of coverage of the Trump of the Trump administration at Reason has been that we call it like we see it. When he does things that we like, we say so. When he does things that we don't like, we say so. But overall, I think there's a lot of concern about what has you know what has happened in this country in the last three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was just thinking about how when I took over National Review, when I started National Review Online, you know, back in the Pleistocene era. Um, at the time, I'm sure these demographics have changed, but at the time, the average reader of reason was actually older, more Midwestern and whiter than the average reader of National Review, which is it's kind of saying something. Yeah, no, it really is saying something, you know. And um, um, and part of it was because the cultural frequency or valence of, of libertarianism in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was very different than what it is today. Um but I, you can see how, like, a lot of the sort of crankier, older white guys who go to, say, Freedom Fest or something like that could kind of like Trump, right? Because he's, he's, he's a blunderbuss who, you know, that you unleash on, you know, the libs and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but sort of, sort of sociologically, where do, like, the young... So one of the things that concerns me, I remember talking to Catherine Maggie Ward about this, who I love, and... You know, she was talking about how there's a certain amount of incipient positive liberty libertarianism creeping up. And um, I'm just kind of wondering whether this was about five, eight years ago. But um, uh, is it seems to me that that that's sort of like the how to put this. It's the Amari version of libertarianism, right, where the state sides on the side of the of the couple wanting the gay wedding cake rather than on the baker, you know, this sort of enforced good kind of stuff. Do you have a sense of, because I haven't been following all this stuff, I've been busy with other things. Do you have a sense of what the prevailing understanding of what libertarianism means for younger people today? For people who call themselves libertarian. I'm talking about the serious kids who show up about stuff. I'm not talking about like, you know, wanting no, uh, you know, quiet hours in your dorm in college. Kind of. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think um, it's it's hard to say because it's impossible to poll, you know, young right. libertarians. But um, from what I see going to the conferences and things and um, interacting with young people is that they're, they're, there's a pretty strong rejection of that idea of positive, um, p- positive liberty. liberty. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I mean, I would, I have and would, call that illiberalism, not liberalism. I I think that if the government is telling you how to run your business or who, you know, trying to coercively require you to enter into a business contract against your will, um, to make you provide birth control for your employees, to make you make the floral arrangement for the gay wedding, whatever the case may be, to make a Catholic hospital perform abortions, you know, just because it's the only hospital in a, in a particular community, which is the current rationale under which the ACLU is filing lawsuits against Catholic hospitals, for example, that those things are all clearly um, ought clearly to be characterized as illiberalism and not liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's I think a pretty standard libertarian take on it from mm-hmm. what I from what I can tell. Um, 
I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up because I think I do this with everybody who's more libertarian than me. And and I should point out that like, it's sort of like when you're getting off a plane, everybody in front of you is taking way too much time and they are um, holding up progress and everybody behind you is like wildly impatient and should just relax. And your position is the exact right one. That's how I view about myself about libertarian. Everybody who's more libertarian than me is nuts. Everybody who's less libertarian than me is tyrannical. Um, that said, uh, I'd like to hear you talk about, I want to come back to the Catholic thing. Um, uh, I agree with you, or I, I, at least I like your version of Catholic doctrine that says we're all endowed with innate dignity and, and with reason and have the ability to make our own choices and all of these kinds of things. And I agree with all of that. And I think that's the best narrative to win. Um, I do think you could come up with other narratives from Catholic history, and many people do. Um, and I just would like them to lose. Um, but uh, I guess I'm more sympathetic in some ways to this idea that... Um, we're our brother's keeper in a non-state way, right? Not the way Obama means it, right? That we're, we're our brother's keeper and therefore I have to raise your taxes. That's not what I mean. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ramesh Panuru was the first one who ever said this to me, is that, you know, libertarianism is the greatest philosophy ever conceived of. It only has two drawbacks, uh, foreign policy and children. And in a society, you actually need to create you know, when when ch children are born, they are, as I would put it, barbarians, right? They come with the factory preset programming, which hasn't changed in 10 or 50,000 years. And the whole point of a civilization is to civilize them. And that requires parents modeling proper behavior, right? We do not give ch small children the right, libertarian right to choose things. Um, and you need strong institutions at a local level that encourage the formation of good character and all of that kind of stuff, um, which is why I'm much more sympathetic to things like anti-pornography laws and all that kind of stuff, even though as a practical level, it's a very complicated thing. Um, damn you, Internet. Um, but so where do you come down on the issue of, say, uh, drug legalization? Yeah, I think it should be legal. I, I think it. everything should be legal, basically. Uh -huh. I, I mean, uh, the distinction you began with, which is to say... I'm a, my brother's keeper, but not in the way where you're going to tax me. Mm -hmm. uh, that that distinction is everything. I mean, that's the libertarian distinction. I don't think there's anything inconsistent about saying I'm a libertarian who wants minimal government, um, but I still believe that we have moral obligations to our fellow man, um, certainly to our families, to our children, um, but also to our neighbors and to people around the world. But that distinction is so important. I mean, I say in, in my piece uh, on nationalism, like there, think about the difference between saying you ought to, out of a sense of, of solidarity or loyalty to your fellow Americans, choose to buy American rather than buying a foreign product versus enacting tariffs that force everybody to pay more, whether they like it or not, whether they can afford it or not, whether they think it's in their own individual best interest or not. Mm. That's the distinction we're talking about. Same with, you know, charity and charitable giving and philanthropy and helping your neighbor versus um, a, a massive welfare state where everybody believes that they are owed something from, from the government. So, yes, I, of course, I do believe that we have moral obligations. There's no way that I could be a practicing, believing Catholic and not and not say that. And I did actually write a piece for a reason a few months ago where I said, this is actually a thing I think that most libertarians could hear more often, mm -hmm. that just because something is a market outcome 
doesn't mean that it is necessarily created equal with every other market outcome. Because if you have a society where people believe that they have obligations to each other, and so they freely choose to share their wealth with one another and to make different choices besides the sort of um, single-minded pursuit of pursuit of profit above all else, you're going to get different market outcomes without any government intervention than you would get in a, in a system where everybody is just out for themselves and nobody believes that they owe anything to anybody else and a sort of in a sort of Randian way. So those those are both equally libertarian in the sense of being free markets in which people make choices and government stays out of it, but you get wildly different. I mean, there, there would be wildly different places to live. And I definitely have a preference about which one of those I would like to live in. Yeah, I guess. Um, my point again is because I, I I think it's very strange for me to be more of a subsidiarist, subsidiarist, more in favor of subsidy, subs. I can't say it. It's, it's like subsidiarity. Wow, it's like there was some weird voodoo curse somewhere that just said you cannot laugh and talk about this. Uh, localism. I like localism, and um, and it seems to me that um, empowering local communities, starting with the family with the ability to um, think more seriously about shaping character and creating good citizens um, is just doesn't terrify me. And my problem with the, and I don't want to repeat arguments I've made a bunch of times with people, but my problem with the drug legalization stuff, I mean, I, I think the pot thing has been handled badly, but I, I was always in favor of eventual decriminalization of weed. Um, but the reason I brought up my brother's keeper thing is, is that heroin's different, right? And um, having had, I mean, I'm not trying to like, you know, sort of uh, bully, moral, do moral bullying here, but having had a brother who died um, from his addictions, um, I've seen and I've had lots of other friends who had serious drug addictions. Um, uh the whole point of libertarianism and your argument about Catholicism is that we are endowed with reason. And part of the problem with drug addiction is not for everybody, but for a statistically significant number of people, addiction completely destroys their capacity, not completely destroys, but does grave harm to their capacity to be rational actors. It is a form of chemical slavery. And if you are our brother's keeper, I think that it is not an unreasonable thing to say that um, that not all choices should be available. You just need certain limiting principles. I agree with you. This is one where I think you hit one, right? I mean, like, we are not in danger of people um, uh, being so addicted to philanthropy that they just, you know, give away all their money and who cares if they do. The social consequences of that are not bad. The... The, the thing with narcotics is a little different to me. Yeah, but everything you just said about heroin applies to alcohol as well. Um, and we tried prohibition of alcohol and it failed. And it, we're against it. I think most of us, I think you and I are probably in agreement on this. And most people um, around us are th that we, we think that that was a mistake for two reasons. One, because we think that you should have the freedom to have a drink if you want one. We believe that individual liberty is valuable unto itself. And two, because the the negative unintended consequences of trying to ban something were so horrifyingly bad that we said, you know what, even if there are upsides to banning alcohol and to reducing access to alcohol and to keeping it out of the hands of children and whatnot, um, the the way that it propped up you know, gangs and, and uh, organized violence, the way that it makes it difficult for somebody who does have an addiction problem to get to get help to to seek out you know actual treatment like medical treatment for that problem, like the just the, the sheer number of ways in which it creates black markets and leads to worse outcomes like 
just at a, on a humanitarian level were so large that we that we said this is this was a failed experiment. Let's go back to where we started. And so the, I think that all the same arguments apply to harder drugs um, that we haven't gotten there where we recognize that they're analogous, but I think they are. And, and so um, both both in terms of the sort of individual right to do something to my body if I want to, whether you like it or think it's right or wrong or not. And the fact that prohibition leads has, you know, America is now the country that has the largest incarcerated population on earth. We have organized crime and traffickers that are being made rich, um, you know, because because of the black markets that are created by by the um, the criminalization of these substances. I mean, there's just a, I think there's a pretty strong argument that uh, on balance making these drugs illegal is worse for us overall than than the alternative, even from like a, a sort of consequentialist perspective, not just the moral. Yeah, I guess I'll, I mean, I, I'm all in favor of having a less punitive approach to helping people and getting them into treatment and all these kinds of things. Um, and so there are aspects of the drug war that I'm fairly libertarian or, or you know, National Review has been against the drug war for 25, 30 years. Um, but at the same time, um, I disagree. I mean, I, yes, prohibition on heroin is analogous to prohibition on alcohol, but not all analogies are perfectly symmetrical. And um, there is a rich tradition going back to ancient Greece of drinking alcohol. Going back to ancient, you know, I think the first written words were a recipe for beer. Um, uh, so. That is not the same thing in terms of a cultural institution as as heroin or fentanyl or any of these kinds of things. Well, there's every reason to believe that people would make different choices because of that. Like, I think one of the one of the sort of straw men is that if we legalized all drugs tomorrow, that suddenly we would have a nation that full of people who would just choose to become heroin addicts tomorrow. Uh, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that. So would you have any problem with corporate? You know, this is something David Bowes wrote about in his libertarianism book um, about how much better a world it would be if corporations could guarantee the quality of heroin yes. and advertise it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you're okay with, you know, uh, during daytime, during, you know, Saturday morning television, having commercials on air, uh, advertising that, you know, you know, from Procter & Gamble saying our heroin will get you much higher. Yeah, the, the you know, the solution to bad speech is more speech. I'm firmly in that camp. So I'm not. I'm yeah, not. I, I think that's. I mean, this, see, this is where I have to get off the libertarian bus because I think that's like affirmatively nuts. Um, and I think you can have a liberal society that draws lines to certain things, and that's an easy line for me to draw. And um, and I also think it is, as a matter of pure practical politics, insane for libertarians. It's one thing for libertarians to believe it and say it on little panels. It is insane as a political movement to lead on that stuff. And libertarians have always made this mistake. I mean, of, you know, you judge political movements by what they emphasize, not what they, and what they prioritize, not necessarily on what they fully believe. And uh, for most of my life, at the, at the intersection of practical politics and libertarianism, it's basically been marijuana legalization has been the driving. And we won. And you won, yeah. But marijuana is a very now. different thing than than heroin. Okay, just, but you yeah. just said that the thing that matters is what you emphasize, and that's what we've emphasized, and that's the thing we were right on that you now agree with us on, and that we're winning on at a 
practical political level. So I don't see how that is a, a mark against us. I mean, I can understand your point about maybe spend a little less time talking about heroin. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, you asked the question. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, like I, I asked this question. of I mean, you have the same position as my friend Charlie Cook, as, as, as Catherine Mangle Ward, as... You know, uh, my friend Ron Bailey. I mean, I, I'm used to hearing this answer, and I just think it's nuts. And um, I think that uh, you know the the my problem with you know things like censorship is that with most normal people, and I use this in the most loving way possible, uh, except for like the two percent of people who are actually consistent real libertarians out there, right? when people say they're against censorship is what they really mean is they're against censorship um, that they don't like. But whenever I say, okay, would you want to ban, uh, do you think it's okay that the, right now it's illegal to broadcast uh, even CGI versions of child pornography on on broadcast television? Well, that's not, that's not censorship. That's just community standards or whatever, and they don't use the word. No, it's censorship, and I'm fine with it, right? And it's only every now and then that you find libertarians who say, no, 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 that's, that's speech. It's fine. As long as no actual children are being harmed, we can send this message out into the world. And I think that's a morally ridiculous position and a politically ridiculous position. But again, I'm just trying to start a fight with a libertarian. So I can tell you can tell that's what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, how are things at Reason? Things are good. Yeah. Yeah, things are good. Uh, we're getting good, uh, good reception to our latest, you know, anti-nationalism issue. I'm sure. Lots of, was lots of attention. Piece? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, just did you know what I was talking about about the Randolph Bourne thing about government versus state? No, okay. and I, I thought about asking you to clarify. Yeah. No, I could, I could tell because you did a jerk back of your head or something like that, and because um, I think you would like it. It's a uh, um, Randolph Bourne makes this case. You know, he's guys is. Uh, uh, war is the health of the state, right? And his point is much more complex than just like wars bring out bad things in people. It's that um, um, you really have two things. You have the government and you have the state. And when you're not at war or in a crisis, we have government, at least in our liberal democracy, right? And government is this place where people hash out their disagreements, where it's sort of like Ben Sass's opening remarks at the Kavanaugh hearings. You know, Congress is where you're supposed to have people disagreeing with each other, arguing, compromising, trading, opposing points of views and reconciling interests. That's where politics is, which is all about disagreement, not agreement. And government is good um, to a certain extent, but one of the things that's good about it is that you can make fun of it and you can mock it and you can criticize it. And you can say those clowns in Washington because when you have when you're in a state of peace and prosperity and non-crisis government is sort of this inept op, you know institution where you're allowed to sort of look down upon it because it's where grubby politicians are then you go in a state of war all of a sudden the state becomes the shining symbol of the Volksgemeinschaft, right? And it's it's the thing that represents all of the people. And criticizing the government or the state then becomes a kind of tribal treason and all that kind of stuff. And this has sort of been my critique of the left for my entire professional life is that they constantly kind of come up with crises that empower the state to replace the government and we all just sort of fall in line. That's what William James meant by the moral equivalent of war stuff. And that's part of my big problem with the nationalism stuff is that it takes away all of those safeguards 
that keeps the government from becoming the state. Because as you said, if nationalism is the highest good, then the president, because he's the only person who speaks for the entire state and the entire represents the entire nation, you're giving a permission structure for that person to basically decide everything that is in the interest of the nation. And if the nation is the highest good, then you're giving that person at least psychologically an enormous amount of power, which is nuts. But anyway, I just thought to get that out there because I think it's really interesting. I used to not like Bourne, and then I reread him about two years ago, and I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, okay, one last thing on the nationalism thing. Are you against, because Catholic means like universal, right? Sure. Yeah. And libertarianism is at least the branch that you sort of come from. At least suspicious of borders, right? Are you for a borderless world? I'm not for a borderless. I have no problem with individual nation states existing and there being borders um, and there even being controls about who can cross those borders. Um, but I am for sort of expansive and generous immigration policy in our case. Uh -huh. We're a huge and rich country. I think immigration uh, immigrants do much more to make us stronger and healthier as an economy and as a people than the alternative. I think that pluralism and to tolerance and openness and diversity are baked into that that uniquely American culture that is part of what makes us great and exceptional and that, you know, people like Rich Lowry are so proud of, rightly so, that that's part of it. And so if you if you sort of turn your back on that piece of what makes us us, then you are losing part of what makes us great. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, so there I have, I have no problem with any of that in, in principle. There's a prudential question about the pace of immigration and all of those kinds of questions. Um, but the, one of the reasons I brought it up is just because, first of all, Ron Bailey always used to talk about um, that he was a believer of libertarianism in one state, uh, which is a bastardization of certain Marxist theory, which we don't need to get into, but I always like that. Um, but also because people like Hazoni, they play this game too, where um, wherever nationalism goes bad, that's imperialism, right? And about 80% of the stuff that Hazoni says that I agree with is could better be described as countryism. Like the West, the Westphalian nation state system has a lot of benefits and the EU is bad and the UN is bad and it's better if nations in a sort of federalism of the globe be able to run their own affairs. And I agree with most of that, although as a defender of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, I will um, I sometimes get, I, I don't necessarily go all the way with that. Um, but there is this major strain in libertarianism that is sort of against countryism as well, right? Yeah, it can be. But I think the place where the nationalists go most wrong for me is when they suggest that we ought to be in favor of other people in other places suffering more so that we can benefit. Right. So that's, I think, what comes into tension with the sort of universalism of Catholicism and of the libertarian cosmopolitanism, a belief that we have equal dignity and, and rights. And so, um, you know, I, it's not okay with me to say, if you say that hundreds of millions of people being lifted out of abject poverty in the third world is not a good thing if it means, you know, a, a slight increase in um, in unemployment in Scranton, right. I, I get very um, uncomfortable with that calculus, mm -hmm. um, which is not to say that I don't think that nation state should exist. It's just to say that I think that, you know, America, an American life is not like infinitely more valuable than an, an Indian life or something like that. So, uh, the country of India, although it goes I, either could work. <laughs> Lives, yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Stephanie Slade, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Say hi to all my friends over there at Reason. Will do. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.